there. You're listening to the Collective Church Podcast, recorded live at Collective Church in Roanoke, Texas, with co-lead pastors Courtney Clark and Megan Lawton. Enjoy the sermon. God, thank you um, that we're able to come here today, um, and thank you that everyone is flexible and willing to work with us when things don't quite go like they normally would, um, or as planned. So I just pray that we're able to um, kind of enjoy some space together this morning um, as we dive into this new series. Uh, in your name, amen. So we are starting our series on the book of Luke, um, and this is a series that I've been working on for a long time, and I'm been really excited to start um, for, I mean, since I started working on it. Um, this is the one that I have kind of always envisioned. Um, and I've talked, to, I even had talked to Rob about it before he left. Um, and then when he left, I was like, well, I guess now's as good a time as any. Um, so I'm, I put a lot of work into this one. Um, it's going to be a four part series. Uh, and we're talking about Luke and women. And last night when I was talking to my husband, he was like, why this series? Like, why are you so excited about this one? Um, And I think ultimately what it comes down to is I needed to prove to myself more than anyone else that um, women do have a place in the Bible. They do have a place in the church. um, And all of the people my whole life um, who told me that the Bible was like oppressive of women and that like the males had the dominant experience and the males were right. Um, and they were the only ones that had place in leadership that they were wrong. <laughs> and there's places in the Bible that like actually support that women have a place, um, deserve a place, and not just to like participate, but actually contribute. Um, so that's why this has been important to me. Um, that's why I'm so excited about this one. Um, so like I said, this is gonna be a four part series. This is our first part. Today we're talking about Elizabeth. Um, who's somebody who doesn't get a whole lot of attention. Um, She's normally kind of referenced as the mom of John the Baptist or sometimes as the wife of Zachariah, but she is her own person. um, And she actually has a lot to do with the story um, in Luke chapter one. So we're gonna get there in just a minute if you wanna kind of flip there. Um, So it's kind of no secret throughout, I mean, all of history within the church and not outside of the church that women have have had to fight for their rights. Um, only we're lucky that we live in a country where that's not necessarily the case. Um, we have at least political rights. We can vote, we can buy land, we can have jobs. Um, we can be self-sufficient for the most part. Um, but uh, that's taken a long time. Uh, women have had to fight for that. And in the church, especially, women are still fighting for that. Um, and then there are theologians who still, to this day, strongly believe that the male experience is the dominant experience, um, is the right way to do things, is the right leadership to take. Um, there's a philosopher, Simone de Beauvoir. Um, she's recognized as a philosopher. She says that she was not one. So take that however you want. Um, in her book, The Second Sex, claims that Christian ethics have actually contributed to the oppression of women, um, that the New Testament is a primary tool of patriarchy as we see it today. And then, Another author, Sandra Schneider, made two points in her essay titled Freeing Theology. The first says that scripture presents male privilege as the norm and women are subject to males as a divine order. And the second presents God as male and equates all males to God through masculinity. So again, there are definitely plenty of arguments that say um, patriarchy and what male, the male experience being the dominant better 
correct way lens to view things is right, is biblical. Um, but there are other theologians who argue that the New Testament is actually not that at all, is very much pro-woman, especially for the time period in which it was written. So it depends on how you look at it. Um, it depends on who you're talking to. They're like interpreting the Bible for any other issue, idea. There are a lot of factors that come into play. For example, language. Um, the Bible wasn't written in English. <laughs> and then there's the power dynamics are different than what we see today. Economics are different. Gender role expectations are different. Um, just to name a few. And then you add the fact that the Bible, the Bible was translated in a patriarchal society that viewed women differently. It was written in a society that viewed women differently. And it was just kind of dominated by the male experience. So language is, well, the language of women is largely ignored. The experience of women is largely ignored. Um, and then there are places where the original language uses female pronouns for God but it's not translated that way, just because of the society that they were in. It depends on who's translating it too, um, how they read it, or if they had male and female pronouns or to distinguish necessarily the difference. Um, language plays a big part in how we interpret and see the Bible uh, for a number of different things. And because of these arguments, women have had a really hard time finding their place in the church. Um, and this isn't exclusive to Christianity. There's other religions that do it too. Um, and then there's religions that don't. <laughs> and there's, you know, Islam is another one that is oppressive of women, much more so than Christianity today. Um, so my story has been no secret. Um, I think I've been pretty vocal about it. I think everybody probably knows. Um, for those of you who don't, I, the church that I worked at before this, I was actually fired because I asked to preach. Um, and I worked in churches for years, all volunteer, because women were not considered to be allowed to hold paid positions, um, because that would be giving you authority that you didn't have, according to the Bible. And I had to work hard um, to do anything that I did in the church. And I, it was something that I felt like I, I really wanted, deeply wanted to do, um, was be involved in the church, was was to speak, um, was to preach. And I just kept hitting wall after wall. And this is not exclusive to just a handful of churches. I know there are many women here at our church that have similar experiences, or at least know someone that does. Um, <clears throat> and I think we can kind of see a move away from this like very obvious oppressive stance on women. There are some of these churches, even the churches that I came from, have women on staff now, but you can still see the discrepancy of they're called minister, or they're called director, or they only work with children. They're never called pastor. They're not in direct, or they're not in executive pastor positions. They're not deacons. Um, there's still some difference. And again, this isn't all churches. There are definitely still, I mean, our church is all, we only have women on staff <laughs> at our church. So it's not all churches. Um, but this has been my experience, and I know several others as well. Um, and I, but I think if we take a step back, and really look at the text as a whole, we can see that Jesus specifically um, isn't for the oppression of anyone, not even women, um, even within the culture that he's in. And our intention with this series of Luke is to take a different look at the text and see that women are included um, and in detail throughout 
the book of Luke, um, because that's what we're focusing on, but throughout the, specifically the life of Jesus um, and throughout the New Testament as a whole, throughout the Bible as a whole. So for many years, the texts um, attributed to Luke, which are the book of Luke's and the book of Acts, um, have been seen as allies to Christian feminism, in a sense, um, depending on to your, who you're talking to, I guess. Um, so Charles Erdman, in his commentary, The Gospel of Luke and Exposition, even goes as far as to call um, the book of Luke the gospel of women. Um, so, I mean, Luke is pretty inclusive. Um, there are scholars who argue the opposite, that it is, he's, he only includes women because of his cultural lens, um, but doesn't necessarily mean that he's pro the inclusion of women in leadership. Um, so kind of some history on the book of Luke. The book of Luke and Acts are attributed to this person named Luke. Um, we don't actually know the name for sure of who wrote these books. We know that they were written by the same person um, because there's parallels in themes, writing style, um, and they're both addressed to this person called Theopolis. Um, and they're written in a way that they're supposed to be read together. So Luke is about the life and the history of Jesus, and Acts is the response of the church to the life and the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus and how that good news of Jesus spread throughout Rome. And so Luke depicts the Roman Empire kind of as um, sympathetic to the Christian movement. He is um, kind of trying to rectify and show the legitimacy of this new religion that was started by a revolutionary who was crucified by Rome. <laughs> he's kind of saying like, hey, we're not all like trying to overthrow everything. Like he's trying to kind of level the playing field and spread peace um, while also trying to say like, we are an actual religion. We are like moving forward. We're not just some like niche group that's kind of gung ho for overthrowing the government here. And so he's trying to ro influence Rome positively. And his primary audience here is um, Gentiles, not Jews. So anyone who's not Jewish, essentially. Um, and he writes as a Roman historian. He includes a lot of different styles, but his primary um, avenue is through history. So Luke actually was not an eyewitness account to the life of Jesus. So all of his work is written as investigative journalism. He uses Mark, we know for sure, um, to base a lot of his work, but he also does interviews with people who were there at the life of time of Jesus. Um, we don't obviously know the people that he talked to specifically, um, but there was a lot of work and a lot of travel that went into writing this text. And he includes a lot of detail for someone who was not there. Um, it's really pretty impressive, the writing style, when you look at and see like he was not even a around um, Jesus in person. So we see through the book of Luke and the book of Acts that the author, who we assume is Luke, cares a lot for the poor and the oppressed, which is where caring for women comes in because at the time they would be what we would consider a marginalized community. So nearly one third of the book of Luke deals with women. There are 15 texts in which women are the primary character, 19 texts where women or the traditional work of women is the focal point of the story. And Luke writes in parallels, meaning that there's a story with a point that he makes, and then there's a similar story that follows with the same point. Um, and a lot of these stories are written so there's a male and then there's a female. That's the main character in those parallels. Um, for example, in Luke chapter one, we see there's a messenger that comes to Zechariah who um, gives a message to him about his wife being pregnant with a baby, who we'll later find out is John the Baptist. And then that same messenger appears to Mary and tells her that she will be pregnant with a baby. So we see that parallel, a similar story. 
um, it's obvious that Luke includes more stories of women than the other Gospels, just by those numbers. Um, and we see characters that are introduced in the book of Luke that we don't see introduced anywhere else, um, specifically female characters. But then we also see different places where there are 10, um, there's not very many women that have names in the book of Luke. There's only 10 named women versus 39 named men. So this is where that argument again of like, he's not necessarily pro-inclusion of women. Um, it depends on how you look at it, right? Um, and just kind of viewing the culture. And so the first two chapters of Luke in particular really paint women in a positive light um, as pretty powerful. And they provide a view of the birth story of Jesus that's not found in any of the other gospels. Uh, and again, they're beautifully detailed and they're really well written. And so there are female characters introduced here that we don't find anywhere else in scripture. One of them is Elizabeth, who we're going to talk about today. And the other one is a widow named Anna, which we'll talk about um, not next week, but the week after in the third part of this series. Um, so beginning in the text with stories that have women as the focal point is making a pretty big statement. Um, this book is about the life of Jesus. So Jesus is obviously very important to Luke, the writer. Um, and by naming three women who are part of groups that were largely forgotten by society as the starting point for the life of Jesus is pretty significant and powerful. So these three women are a barren woman, Elizabeth, an unmarried woman who's pregnant, Mary, and a widow, Anna. So despite how you or different theologians might view Luke's stance on women, including these three women as the starting point for Jesus' life, is pretty powerful. So we're going to start with Elizabeth. Um, she's, again, one of the characters that's mentioned. This is the only story about her in the Bible, is in Luke chapter 1. Um, and she isn't really spoken of very often in the church. Like I said before, she's normally only referenced as the mother of John the Baptist or as, her, as the wife of Zechariah. Um, but we learned quite a lot about her in not a lot of textual space. Um, there's a lot of information in a few verses. So let's start and we'll take a look at Luke 1, 5. Okay, um, so it says, In the time of Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all of the Lord's commandments and religious uh, regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. And then it tells a story about how um, Zechariah is chosen by lots, or like basically kind of, they like draw sticks. Um, it's, a little, it's more complicated than that. But essentially, they draw sticks to choose who's going to be the priest and go into the temple. So Zechariah is chosen to go into the temple. And while he's in the temple, he's, um, has, he's visited by the messenger who tells him that his wife is going to be pregnant. Um, and then he doesn't believe the messenger. And the messenger says, okay, well, now you're not going to be able to talk. And that kind of sums up the it's very long vision of Zechariah, <laughs> the visitation from the messenger. So then we're going to pick up in verse 23. When his time of service was complete, he returned home, Zechariah. After his, this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for the five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. And so here we learn, one, that Elizabeth is the wife of Zechariah. Um, her and her husband are Levites meaning that um, they're very well educated. She grew up in a family of priests 
Um, he grew up in a family of priests, so she's probably heard a lot of scripture her whole life. She's probably knows a lot about the history of where her family has come from. Uh, and she learns even more by being married to Zachariah because it's probably conversations that happen just naturally since they're both educated um, in scripture. Uh, Malachi chapter two, verse seven says that Levites are called to have a special responsibility regarding teaching. Um, so it says, for the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. So this is again, just saying that Levites are very well educated and they have a pretty big responsibility as, um, within their culture and within their people group. Um, and then uh, we see at the end that she is pregnant um, with a baby we'll later find out is who uh, is John the Baptist. But uh, we see a lot of similarities here with the story of Sarah and Abraham um, who are also become pregnant later in age. Um, and then the text kind of switches gears a little and goes into Gabriel, the messenger, announcing to Mary that she is going to have a baby. Um, and then Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. Um, and we'll pick up the story again in Luke chapter 1, verse 39. So at that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zachariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby left in her womb, and Elizabeth, with Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has, has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. So this interaction is often referred to as the visitation, where uh, Mary comes to visit with Elizabeth. And it's broken up into four parts. Today we're going to talk about the first two. Next week we'll talk about the last two. Um, but it's essentially a conversation between Mary and Elizabeth. Um, so this first part is, the first part just kind of sets up the story of saying like, here's the characters, here's what's happening. And then Elizabeth is given a speech. And then the third part, Mary is given a speech. And so Mary's speech, or Elizabeth's speech, I'm sorry, to Mary, um, she gives her a lot of praise. She calls her a young woman, um, and blesses, she says, you are a blessed young woman. Um, she's referencing scripture here. Um, she's referencing the book of um, the prophet Deborah in the Old Testament. So she's giving her a lot of power. She's humbling herself before Mary and giving her a lot of praise in um, a situation where Mary probably isn't feeling that from anyone else. Um, but it's also important to notice that Mary hasn't told Elizabeth what's going on. Um, she doesn't know, they didn't have phones. She couldn't like call her and be like, hey, I'm pregnant, I'm gonna come to your house because I can't be at my house right now. Um, she just shows up and Elizabeth like breaks into this, oh my gosh, this is amazing. You've done so many great, wonderful things. Um, and she humbles herself before Mary. Um, there's a specific point in verse 41 that I wanna look at where it says, that she was filled with the Holy Spirit. This is language that's used a lot in the book of Luke and in the book of Acts. And it can be kind of confusing um, and also kind of triggering depending on which traditions you come from. Um, but basically what it's saying here is um, to be in the presence of God or to experience the presence of God in most circumstances, you had to be a priest and you had to go through very specific rituals to enter the temple. Like Zechariah, we saw earlier in the story, um, 
was chosen by lots to be in the temple and experience the presence of God. Or for example, Moses and um, that we talked about last week had to go up on a mountain to experience the glory of God and he had to go alone and he could only see the back of God. Um, so there are very specific kind of rules around who could experience the presence of God. And by Luke saying they were filled with the Holy Spirit, it's ushering in like a new age of there's a time that's coming where we can all experience God at all times, no matter what. We don't have to be in the temple. We don't have to go through these rituals. We can just experience God when we want it, when we need it. And the first character in the story to be filled with the Holy Spirit is Elizabeth. He's giving her a lot of power, a lot of power. And he's giving her credibility. He's pointing her as important in the story. She's the first person to experience this pretty new, very powerful thing that hasn't been experienced before. And it's not her husband. It's not the baby. It's her. The baby moves in response to being her being filled with the Holy Spirit. But the scripture says it was her that was filled with the Holy Spirit. He's including her in the story as not just the person to hold the baby, as not just a wife, but as the first person to be filled with the Holy Spirit, as the first person to recognize who Jesus is before anyone has told her. And she wasn't the one visited by the messenger. It was her husband. And he can't talk, so he probably didn't tell her a whole lot of what was going on, right? So again, she's important to the story. She's being filled with the Holy Spirit, and she offers praise. Meanwhile, her husband, like I said, is silenced in his interaction with the Spirit. Um, so let's go back and we'll kind of look at verse 11 um, and see this, experience, uh, this interaction between the messenger and Zechariah. It says, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of in incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will, hear you, will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth. Um, and then we're going to skip down to verse 19. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. So he's mute um, because he didn't believe the messenger. He doubted the messenger, that little portion that I didn't read. Um, so we hear this prophetic speech from the wife, from Elizabeth, while her husband is mute. This is a really interesting juxtaposition here, um, that the man is the one who remains silent and the prophetic speech comes from a woman. The first person to proclaim who is the Lord is a woman, not a man. It's important to, again, notice that Mary hasn't said anything. Elizabeth just knows this um, because she has been in the presence of God. And Elizabeth is in a really unique position here. Um, she can relate to Mary in a way that no one else can. She is able to see how Mary may feel because Mary's probably being whispered about and doubted and ostracized by her community. And Elizabeth, being the barren one, has been doubted and ostracized by her community. So in this time period, barrenness, or the inability to conceive a child, was considered to be the woman's fault. 
and normally most people saw it as disfavor from God, meaning that she did something to fall out of favor with God. Um, despite the fact that the scripture continues to reference her and her husband as righteous, um, the community around her likely saw her as someone who, was, who deserved this punishment from God, um, that she did something to fall out of favor and she deserved to be barren. It was her fault. But then here she is, she's pregnant, and she's the first one filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, and she's able to relate to Mary um, and walk with her through this, to be her village when Mary probably doesn't have anyone else. Um, as someone who knows what it's like to be whispered about and judged, as the one who has like done something disfavorable for God, right? And the story stays, or says that Mary and, uh, stayed with Elizabeth for three more months. We can likely um, assume that Mary stayed with Elizabeth until John was born because the next part immediately goes into the birth of John, um, but we don't know. Um, there's no like information about what happened in those three months. So then we're gonna pick up in Luke uh, chapter one, verse 57. There's a lot of scripture today. Um, so it says, when it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. They said to her, There is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote his name as John. Immediately, his mouth was open and his, tongues was, his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak, praising God. So Zechariah has been unable to talk through the entire pregnancy. Um, and now the baby has been born. And in the, this culture, the naming ceremony at the eight days was like one of the most important things you could do for a baby. Um, it was similar, I guess, to how we would dedicate a baby um, in the church today. Um, but it was always the man, the father, who would name the child. But the father can't talk. So again, Luke is giving power to Elizabeth, but she's the one who names the baby. She's the one, and her husband comes in and supports her. He's flipping the script um, and flipping the power of uh, this imbalance of, it's just foreshadowing of the way that Jesus does his whole life. He came to kind of like overthrow the whole system and like, no, we're going to just start over and do something completely new, um, just like he's doing here with this story. We're going to do something new. The mom is going to be the one to name this baby. <sighs> Elizabeth's story, we see that God genuinely cares for the people who are forgotten, for the marginalized, for the oppressed, for the people who everyone judges, who everyone says they've done something wrong and they deserve to be punished. And the women who are barren and forgotten, he cares for her by providing her with a baby, yes, but he does something different. He gives her the Holy Spirit when no one else has experienced that yet, at least in this story. Um, and then he provides Mary with a village when she has no one. He cares for her. And Elizabeth, I think, gets a lot out of that, too, of having someone to love her through probably what's pretty scary. Um, I, it could be only terrifying to be pregnant 
in old age. It was terrifying to be pregnant in my 20s, so I could only imagine what it's like. Um, and you need that. You need someone to walk with it through you that kind of can understand and go through the same experience. Um, but the fact that Luke includes Elizabeth when she's not included anywhere else um, just indicates that Luke finds her important. She's important to the story. She's important to Jesus. Um, and she's really foreshadowing what is to come with the life of Jesus um, by flipping the script and kind of erasing what would be considered the norm and starting over with something entirely new. And Jesus welcomes everyone to the table. Everyone, despite their social, economic, or political status. We see Jesus himself says in Matthew 20, verse 16, that the last will be first and the first will be last. By using women, Luke is driving home the point before the story even gets started that Jesus uses all of us. We're all important to the story. We're all welcome to the table, not just to sit and listen, but to actively contribute to the conversation, to be a part of what's going on, to be a part of bringing heaven to here and now. The women, the children, the poor, the powerless, the oppressed, you're all welcome to the table. This has been the Collective Church Podcast. We post episodes every week on Sundays. If you're interested in supporting our church, you can give at collectivechurch.net slash give. I hope you enjoyed listening.